What's up, my friends? My name is Adam McRoberts, and this is the Do Big Things Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Big Things Crewing, where we want you to do big things. My guest today, Eric Schlimmer, is an avid mountaineer times 10. He has reportedly hiked over 2,000 mountains, including all 217 of the 3,000 footers in the Adirondacks, all 387 of the Catskill 2,000 footers, and that list just goes on and on. He's done a bunch of through hiking, including the Long Trail, the Florida Trail, the Baker Trail, and that list goes on and on. He has pedaled the mountain bike from Canada to Mexico, as well as along the U.S.-Mexico border, and that list goes on and on. He's a kayaker, a hiker, a peak bagger, a through hiker, and you better believe that list goes on and on as well. He has hiked dozens of peaks and trails that I have to admit I've never even heard of, and he's most recently just touched down in Colorado and is beginning to explore our state, and I just can't wait to hear what he gets up to out here. He's an author, a publisher, and just a really, really humble guy. Uh, He's a friendly guy. He's really easy to talk to, and I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I apologize for the sound quality of this episode. We were working with a limited network connection, so we did the best we could. The first five or ten minutes probably sound the worst, so hang in there. There is a delay between our voices, but bear with us. The most interesting part of this conversation, to me anyways, was the last half an hour or so. Eric explains how he never treats or filters his water when he is out on his adventures. This really blew my mind, as I've always been taught to filter everything below tree line as kind of a general rule of thumb. Eric doesn't treat any of his water, even when he is hiking down low, so hang tight, you've got to hear all about this. The explanation he gives is riveting, and I loved hearing all about it. I could have listened to him and his stories all night long. How'd you guys do this weekend? What'd you guys get up to? Did you get outside? Did you get after it? It was a beautiful weekend in Colorado, aside from the smoke from all the wildfires, that is. Big Things Crewing was down in the Sangre de Cristo mountain range supporting one of the Human Potential Race Series races. Uh, I personally paced the guy from Delaware Delaware, who came out here to do a mountain ultra. Had a blast pacing him and helping him achieve his goals. I was out there with him for about eight hours and he just crushed it. Vic, congratulations. I'm proud of you, man. You did it. It was really inspiring to see an East Coaster come out to the mountains and battle the altitude, the smoke, the elevation, and everything else this weekend had to throw at you. Keep doing big things, my man. All right, guys. Hope you got after it this weekend, and hope you have a great week. Eric Schlimmer, coming up in just a second. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans, after all, it's only pressure, 
You got this. Adidas. Eric. Eric, can you hear me? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I can, Adam. Yes, vaguely. I think can you I hear can me? hear you. Can you hear me all right? All right. I think we made it happen. I can, yes. No problem at all. Good deal. We did, good yes. Deal. Thank How you. How are you? I'm great. I'm doing well. How are you? It's another beautiful day in Colorado. Good. Me too. <laughs> no yeah, kidding. I no find kidding. myself saying that often. So you haven't been in Colorado very long, have you? Yes. I moved here last okay, November. Nice. So uh, we're coming so, up on 10 yeah, months. Eric, based on the research I've done, um, you're a really well-rounded outdoorsman. You kayak. You bike tour, you peak bag, you through hike. So besides the obvious, what inspired you to move to Colorado? Ah, yes. Uh, well, the short story, I, uh, I visited Colorado for the first time about a decade ago. It was part of a road trip and just want to do some hiking. I had never really explored this part of the world before. And I said, oh, that's very nice, and just regarded it as a simple vacation. And then I was in Colorado last summer. I got invited on a veteran-specific backpacking trip centered out of Aspen and uh, spent some more time here, spent a couple days in Colorado Springs. I had some friends here at the time and just got a feel for Colorado. And uh, I like to make decisions, um, not necessarily – I never ask the question, well, will this make me happy or do I want to do this? Uh, being a therapist, I'm kind of methodical in my thought process. And I usually make decisions based on is a person or a location or a job, whatever decision I need to make, is it consistent with my personal values? And Colorado is far more consistent with my personal values than New York. And as I say, the rest is history. I lost you. Okay. Okay. Sorry about that. Yep. You're back. So yeah, no it problem. just uh, lined up with your value than, than living in New York. Is that where you live most of your life? Yeah, I was born in New York state uh, until I was 12 years old. I lived in a city uh, called Poughkeepsie. It's about an hour North of New York city. And then, when I was 12, my parents moved me and my big sister to the Adirondack Mountains. So I really tell people I grew up in the Adirondacks. So I've lived in New York most of my life, uh, mostly for seasonal work, uh, trail building and backcountry ranger work. I've lived up and down the East Coast for seasonal jobs. But uh, this is the first big, uh, far Excellent. move of well, listen, my life. Listen, man, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Um, you've done just a ton of stuff outdoors. I mean, hiked over 2,000 mountains, um, 1,000 nights camping. You know, your website says uh, a 15,000 mile hike, 15,000 miles hike, and I'm sure it's it's more than that. Um, 
if you wouldn't mind, just like take us back and tell us how it all started and, you know, the first mountain you climbed and, and how you came to love the outdoors. Yeah, well, it was oh, not okay. love at first sight. <laughs> the first mountain I climbed, I was 13. And I still remember this. And uh, I was attending a whitewater kayaking camp of sorts and kids would come from all over the country and i happened to live like three miles away from it just by chance so my parents shipped me off to that for a couple weeks and we climbed a mountain called crane mountain which is kind of high for the southeast adirondacks it's about 3300 feet tall it has a trail up it at the time it had a fire tower this is back in about 1985, 1986. And I don't even remember why we were there. All I remember is it rained the entire day. So maybe whitewater kayaking got canceled that day. I'm not really sure. I mean, it was so many years ago. So I have this bunch of totally miserable kids getting dragged up this godforsaken mountain in the pouring rain. We get on top and there's the fire tower, but we're socked in in the clouds. And so, of course, we can't see anything and the and the trails have turned into stream beds and then we just walked back down and got in the van and we were probably freezing and soaking wet and i was just like <laughs> what the hell's the point right like right <laughs> why 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 did anybody do this voluntarily and um but hey that was just one experience and as i got a little older and i moved into my teens I just started exploring the woods behind my parents' house and I would either mountain bike or walk the four miles to school and the four miles back at the end of the day. And I just found it uh, very relaxing, very peaceful. I enjoyed being alone by myself. Uh, I wasn't very scared of the woods. You get a lot of young hikers and you know, they think they're going to get attacked by a bear. A lot of hikers, beginner hikers, have this odd fetish yeah, no that kidding. they think there are serial killers <laughs> in the woods. Yeah. I, I really yeah figured this out yet. But between the serial killers and the bears, uh, kind of keeps people. Up. It just felt very comfortable uh, being in the mountains, and that started uh, about thirty years of being fortunate enough to live in the mountains, to work in the mountains. And though I have a real job now, I'm still in the mountains so, every weekend. From a young age, you just felt this affinity for the outdoors. Um, you know, at what point did you start climbing mountains or did you start going on adventures? I know you were in the military. Was it before your mil military experience? No, it was after. So I graduated high school in 1991. I was 17 years old. And then a week later, I was in the army. And spent almost three years. So back then, and you can still do it these days, I think, but it's quite rare. Back then, it was fairly popular option to go in for two years. So what you do is you go in and you do all your training. And my training took about eight or nine months. And then you start counting down your time when you get to your unit. So it was about three years total. I got out and um, I was in the infantry. And the military is very good at ruining anything that could be <laughs> like potentially running, fun. Exercising. So, yeah, camping in the yeah. oh yes yes they're they're very good at that and uh <laughs> they um you know 
that camping, and I'm using my little air quotes here, camping in the military is a far cry than camping in the civilian world. So I kind of uh, swore off the out of doors. I said, oh my God, I'm never going to wear a backpack again. I'm never going to camp again. But it's just kind of who I am. And of course, to it. So I got out in 1993, right around Christmas. And of course, by the end of 1994, I started climbing the high peaks in the Adirondacks, a couple trips to trips to Vermont. I started just kind of learning about how to recreate in the woods safely, but also to have a lot of fun. So what I learned in the military, that style of camping wasn't very fun. But now when I got out, I got some nice gear. You know, I read some backpacking books and just kind of educated myself on how to make it more fun and more enjoyable. And then, of course, I just mm-hmm. fell in love with the woods and all over again. What is it that, that drew you in at first? I mean, was it camping? Was it the actual hiking you were doing? Or, or what was it that, that pulled you in? Um, well, it's interesting. In the military and why people have trouble adjusting to civilian life when they get out of the military is you no longer have a mission. You no longer have a purpose. So when you're in the military, the theme is you don't really take care of yourself. You take care of the person to your left and to your right. And it's very empowering. It gives you great confidence. You have a strong sense of camaraderie. And you know why you're on the planet. You know what your job is, and it's very clearly defined. It's very rewarding. And then when I got out, I kind of said, well, you know, why am I here? I I was going to college, which seemed pretty pointless at the time. and I didn't really connect with my classmates. And it was kind of this soul. And then I found a new sense of purpose and a new mission being in the mountains. So long distance hiking and kayaking and all this other stuff I do in the woods. I'm really a peak bagger at heart. I like climbing lists of mountains. So I got out of the military and I, I learned that people climb every 4,000 foot peak in the Adirondacks or, or 46 of them. And I said, ah, there's a mission, right? So I have this paper in front of me. It's very clear. I know what to do. And I have this new sense of purpose. I'm supposed to go out and climb all these mountains. And I knocked those up in probably a year or two. And then I kind of felt like a lost soul again. I said, now I need a new purpose. So I got into long distance hiking and climbing bigger lists of mountains. And I'm kind of a list driven guy. I mean, why I'm out there is for the pure love of the mountains. I just have this great connection with them. But the lists and the long distance hiking and these specific goals I have Give me that sense yeah, of purpose, which beautiful. I've always enjoyed. Yeah, I, I feel the same, uh, you know, the same draw to the mountains, the same affinity. And, um, you know, I remember when I first started hiking, mm-hmm. I didn't have any friends that hiked. Eventually, that led into running for me long distances in the mountains. But, you know, it was all new to me. I, I didn't have mm-hmm. anyone that talked or anyone who explained it to me. I just remember going and buying my very first pair of hiking shoes and thinking maybe I'll go out on the weekends and, and try some hikes. And I just fell in love with it. Yeah. 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 Um, yes. And yeah. are you a disabled veteran? 
Yeah, I have service-connected disabilities, and it's funny you mention it because I spent an hour or two yesterday on the floor of my apartment uh, unable to get up because okay. I threw out my okay. back. So <laughs> what I have, I have um, two degenerated discs and two bulging discs in my lumbar and then a fractured vertebrae in my neck. So the job I had, I was a paratrooper. So you jump out of planes at night with a lot of heavy gear and you land like a sack of hammers. And uh, so it's common for people in the infantry, special operations and all kind of those combat jobs to have, um, you know, musculoskeletal injuries. Uh, so yeah, that that's from my time in the service. And, you know, I didn't really believe it at first. I started having some really debilitating chronic pain a couple of years after I got out and eventually saw a doctor and a chiropractor. And uh, they said, well, you know, what, what's your background? And I said, well, you know, I've got these injuries. I think it's just from too much hiking. And I raced mountain bikes at the time and I was just pretty hard on my body. And I said, I said, I think that's it. And they said, no, nah, uh, I've seen this before. It's from your time in the service. I said, yeah, but I was only in for like two and a half years. And I remember their response. I said, Eric, <laughs> yeah. that's all it takes. Okay. <laughs> oh, so here we are. How much does that uh, prevent you or, or hold you back when you're on these adventures that you go out on now, like with, you know, camping on the hard ground or, or hiking these big peaks? Does that hold you back at all? I would say so. Um, so for example, I can't mountain bike anymore. It's just not possible because when you have generated discs and bulging discs, kind of the worst thing you can do is sit because it compresses okay. these discs. So if I'm in my office, I'm sitting at home writing or on a mountain bike, you just have that constant pounding and constant compression. So I'll probably never do another long distance mountain bike trip again. I'll definitely never race mountain bikes again fortunately thank goodness uh walking is the best and that's what all my um uh chiropractors and doctors and rehab team has told me he said yeah just keep walking keep walking keep walking now i'm a lightweight backpacker just by habit so i carry a really light pack you know my overnight pack is just a day pack and a sleeping bag that's it People see me, probably all of them think I'm just out for a day hike. It's a very small pack, very light. My base load's only about wow. 10 pounds, so that helps too. Hike in, um, I hike in trail runners, which are a little bit soft. I carry a light pack, and I just kind of have this moderate pace. I use a pair of tre trekking poles to help me as well. So thank goodness I can still walk. When it comes to camping, uh, the firmer the bed so when my back goes down in civilization, I'll actually sleep on the bedroom floor. When I'm out camping, I have a nice bed of pine needles or maybe some hardwood leaves to lay on, and everything kind of realigns. Interesting. I've never thrown out my back while hiking. But it's funny, this why I was on my why I was stuck on my floor for an hour or two the other day. Uh, I threw it out. Uh, I took a shower and I was toweling off. That'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just, it, it's totally bizarre. I've also thrown it out standing up uh, and I've thrown it out picking up a laptop. So it's very interesting that you do these very benign acts 
and it goes out and what what happens is the vertebrae will will kind of shift and they're not in alignment from what i've been told from people in the know is that why that happens is when i'm hiking mountains so let's say i'm hiking a 13,000 foot peak and you know going up a scree field or something my brain sends a message to my spine saying hey guys you better tighten up everything and stabilize Eric's spine because he's going up this big mountain. It doesn't take the time to do that when you towel off sure. getting out yeah. of the shower. That makes sense. Well, it sounds like it was almost your destiny to do these long hikes and to be climbing mountains. Uh, you know, the doctor tells you to walk and boy, you sure walked and sleeping on a hard ground is, is just a feather in your cap. So it, it almost sounds like, um, the struggles you've been through just kind of forged you into this outdoor adventure man that, you know, kayaks, bike tours, peak bags, through hikes, does it all. So it's, it's kind of cool. Yeah. I took their <laughs> advice quite literally. It sounds like it. <laughs> Do you ever have doctors that tell you you're walking too much? Okay. No, no, they don't. Uh, yeah, ha haven't heard that okay. yet. And, uh, I'm a believer. I, I really don't think you can, uh, walk too much. I don't think you can really spend too much time outdoors. Uh, again, at the, the out of doors are great physically, but it's also where I get all my challenges and all my rewards. And it's just, it's kind of the package deal as I'm sure, you know, you're well yeah, aware of. Oh, that's good. I just wasn't sure in terms of your injuries, if the doctors had told you you're walking too much, but it sounds like uh, you're right on track. So that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's worked out very great. I'm very fortunate. Yeah. And I'm definitely going to give up mountain biking uh, for hiking. That's just fine. So um, are the bike tours uh, a thing of your past at this point, or was it just the mountain bike racing that really hurt it? Well, the racing, I was mostly racing when I was in the military. So that was the early 1990s. And I did two seasons when I got out. So I quit racing. And now I'm starting to feel old because I quit racing way back in 1995, <laughs> which uh, some of your listeners right. probably weren't even born yet. So, uh, yeah, so racing uh, was abandoned uh, long ago. You know, the, the long mountain bike trips where I go out and ride like a thousand, two thousand, three thousand miles, uh, those probably won't happen for two reasons. One, my injuries, but two, you know, look, when I when I was 30 years old, if somebody came up to me and said, Hey Eric, you know, you want to go on a two thousand mile bike ride, we're gonna camp out every night and we'll ride like, you know, 70, 80 miles a day. Sure. Yeah, count me in. But now uh, I'm forty seven years old now. And I, I tell people, I don't know if I've gotten softer or smarter, but maybe it's a combination of both. And if somebody said to me, you know, this week, hey, you want to ride 3,000 miles on a mountain bike, I'd probably look at him and say, I don't, that sounds really excessive. Like, why, why would you do that? Like, maybe 100 miles. So <laughs> I think I've lost some of that uh, drive for more extreme and I think that's just fine. I mean, if I could pick an ideal length of a long distance trail to hike, it would probably be about 200 miles, you know, about a 10 day trip. I think that's ideal for me. 
But back in the day, a thousand miles sounded appealing. So I think I've just slowed down a little. It's just a little bit different and it suits my personality well these days. It doesn't sound like it was hard for you to accept that. Like, uh, you know, a lot of people um, who've been involved in sports and athletics, as they get older, they really struggle with with the aging process and not being able to do the things they love. And um, you're still able to get out and do the things you love, just not necessarily at um, as long of distances. And it sounds like it sounds like you're pretty at peace with that. I really am. Um, And it's interesting since I moved to Colorado, I've kind of flipped my peak bagging persona on its head. So what I used to do is come up with a list of, you know, three, four, 500 mountains, and then have this intense drive, you know, come hell or high water, I'm going to hike every single peak on this list and do it as quickly as possible see how many peaks I can grab in a day. And now it's the opposite. I just kind of glance at my map. And the beauty of moving here recently is everything's new. So everything's a nice, fresh adventure, which I enjoy. So now I'll just look at my map and, you know, kind of maybe plan out a two or three day hike. And I'm like, oh, well, that's a nice lake to visit. And okay, then I'll go down this river. And yeah, maybe I'll go up, you know, three or four 13,000 foot peaks and end up back in my car. So it's kind of the opposite. I used to be very focused and kind of the list dictated where I would go. But now it's just I go where I please. And when I get home, I'll write down where I went so I don't forget. So it's very freeing. In hindsight, I, I wouldn't change anything at all. But the way I used to tackle these goals was actually kind of confining and now I find it very freeing, just kind of wander around the woods as I please. How? Just because you were so one-dimensional with these goals you'd set for yourself? Yeah, and of course, uh, it was all about the journey, and I would stop and smell the roses. But it was, you know, if there were maybe three or four peaks that I want to climb that day, that's it. You know, and you and you climb those four, and you really can't take a side trip, because then you won't get them all and they're way the hell out in the middle of nowhere. So it's not like you want to do two and then leave and then have to go all the way back in. So it's it's very um, methodical, very driven. And I've done it quite a few times here in Colorado. I'll make an itinerary and go out, Um, especially when it comes to 14,000 footers. I'll plan on climbing a couple 14ers and I'm a lake and so, oh, yeah, let me check out this lake. And, oh, oh, this, this stream runs into it. All right, well, I'll just follow the stream. Oh, hey, the stream <laughs> spills off this beautiful ridge line. And then before I know it, I'm like six or seven miles away from where I'm supposed to be, <laughs> which is like, so it's just very nice. I find these cool spots. And you know what? If I don't climb a mountain that day, that's okay. That makes sense. I love it. Well, I really want to hear about what you're up to in Colorado and, and you know, what you've done since you've moved out here and, and your plans for the future. But um, take us back a little bit. I mean, you've done a lot of things with your 47 years. Um, I mean, you spent a lot of time out in the Adirondacks. There's 217 peaks above 3,000. And then you said you did all of them above 4,000 before that you know, mountain biking trips from Canada to Mexico and across the the U.S.-Mexico border and, you know, your kayaking trips. I mean, 
what what got you into um, you know getting outside of your state and, and getting outside of your comfort zone and picking up these other disciplines along the way? Well, you know, to be honest, I, I think I get bored easily. So I just kind of like to switch it up. So I did the, you know, right when I got out of the military, I was racing mountain bikes and then got into peak bagging. And then I got into long distance hiking and then long distance canoeing and just kind of mixing everything up. I, I, I have trouble sticking with one specific sport. So I'm not the type of guy that can ride a mountain bike recreationally or race mountain bikes for 15, 20 years. I I just, I I lose interest in it. Or I see another sport and I say, hey, that looks pretty cool. And I think I'd enjoy it. And so I kind of migrate to that. So there are a lot of, uh, obviously, uh, very accomplished long distance hikers and peak baggers and long distance paddlers, et cetera. Um, but there aren't many of us out there who are fairly accomplished in, in a lot of different outdoor sports. And that's what I really enjoy is just kind of changing it up, um, seeing some new places, um, learning some new skills and there is some crossover between them. So I was a long distance hiker first and then got into long distance mountain biking and long distance uh, paddling. Of course, I used a lot of skills that I learned in long distance hiking. And so some of these skills are transferable because the sports are like, they're kind of the same, you know, like long distance hiking is kind of like, Long distance mountain biking, you know, it's maybe 70% the same uh, concerning the gear and the preparation and the planning and the food and all this other stuff. But they're different enough that something, when something new comes along that I discover, it's certainly going to pique my interest. So rather than spending all your time trying to be the best through hiker or the fastest through hiker or, you know, um, the fastest person or, or the you know, whatever the best person would be riding your bike from, from Canada to Mexico, you are kind of a jack of all trades rather than being uh, super efficient and proficient at one of these disciplines. You just enjoy a little bit of everything. I do. And, um, you know, I spent so much time in the, in the mountains and, uh, here in Colorado, I've done way more backpacking trips and day hikes. I've only done like three day okay. hikes. I'm usually for at least one or two nights. And when you're laying in your sleeping bag and you have nothing to think about, uh, so you just kind of your mind wanders because you have nothing to do. And I was thinking, you know, I'll ask a question, not for my own ego, but, you know, have has anybody hiked more mountains than me or have people you know, hiked more long distance trails than me. And in each category, it's yes. You know, so I've hiked 2000 mountains, but I know somebody who's actually hiked 5000 mountains. And that's Kirk who lives up in Denver. And so I'm not what they would call the front runner in every sport. So there are a lot of hikers out there that are faster than me. There are quite a few hikers who have hiked more miles than me. I'm up to somewhere around 15,000. 
So I'm certainly not at the very top of the class in a lot of these sports, but if you combine kind of all of them, so, you know, if, if you were to measure, uh, if you made a list um, to measure people's uh, outdoor experience, and let's say you included mountains climbed, and then you also included miles hiked, and then you also included mountain biking miles ridden, um, I'm, I'm kind of probably right near the top. And again, it's not for my own ego. It's just kind of a fact. So if you do or individually, you know, I, I, I'm ranked, you know, if we want to rank these things, I'm probably ranked sort of near the top, maybe kind of. Um, but I like to mix it up. I, I just think it's very good. I, I like to have a, a diverse range of talents. And so the, the example I give people, you know, a lot of people will hike the Appalachian Trail, but they don't know the difference between a black spruce and an eastern white pine. You know, that bothers me when I don't know that. Right? So I like tree ID. I like logging history. I like forest history. I like toponyms, long distance hiking, long distance biking, lightweight backpacking. I just kind of mix everything up into this giant salad bowl. And I think that's where you learn the most about the outdoors. So you're not hiking just to hike or, or bagging peaks just to check them off a list. You're, you know, you're really engaged. You're out there, you're studying, um, you're paying attention and um, you're really enjoying yourself. You're, you're living it up. Yeah, I think the word is yeah. immersed. So I just kind of, and again, it's it's kind of challenging out here. I'll, I'll see wildflowers and trees and tracks. I just don't know what they are. But I'm sitting in my home right now looking at my shelf, and I have this giant stack of field guides. And so I'm always trying to learn about the environment that I love interacting with. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so is there a discipline that you enjoy the most out of – it sounds like you're really into – or have been into the three different disciplines. Does it all boil down to hiking for you? Okay. Yeah, I'm a hiker at heart and uh, specifically mm -hmm. a peak bagger. I just like, and um, I've thought about this for a long time is why people are drawn to mountains. Yeah, I, think I think it's very odd, well, quite know? frankly. I've, I've said it before on this podcast. Yeah, I mean, really it's drawn to the ocean and some people are drawn to mountains and they're, they're, you know, they're similar, but they're so much different. And I always try and figure that out as well. Yes, it, it's, it, it's just absolutely fascinating because if you look at it just from a very basic level, uh, and this is coming <laughs> from a hiker. I, I don't know why you would climb a mountain. I, I really don't understand. I mean, it's just a big, it's just a big pile of land. I mean, I understand why are we not equally drawn to just a flat piece of land? I mean, it, it's completely plausible <laughs> that we could live in a world where people are drawn to planes, but they're not drawn to this hulking mass of rock and forest and snow and glaciers. And it's, so, I really don't know what it is. And some people will probably offer straightforward explanations like, well, you can go on top and there's a view. And I'm like, 
okay, yeah, I get it, but you're spending four hours to go up, but you spend 10 minutes on top and then you go down. So it's, it's obviously not all about the view. If it's all about the view, you could just look at a coffee table photo book. There's just something that draws us to mountains and it's all over the world. And I don't know what it is. My guess for me is that mountains are different and it's just kind of my personality. So for example, in the Northeast, you'll park at the trailhead and it's an open hardwood forest and you've got some oak and some beech and some birch. And as you climb up the mountain, 1,000, 2,000, maybe even 3,000 vertical feet, that's a really big hill in the Northeast. Now the forest has changed. And if you go up high enough, you'll actually reach tree line. And now you're in that alpine tundra and it's gotten colder and it's gotten windier. And of course the views have changed. So for me, it's about just being in a unique spot but I don't think that fully justifies any semblance of a good explanation as to why people are drawn to mountains. I, I simply don't understand it. And uh, I've been thinking about it yeah, <laughs> for a couple of decades. I mean, you know, people throw around the word energy, like the mountains have a good energy. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't fully understand what that means when they say energy, but I, I somehow identify with it. Because people say the same thing about the ocean, you know, the ocean has Mm -hmm. this great energy and, you know, I've swam in oceans and I've spent a little time here and there on coasts and it's like, yeah, I get it. It's big, it's expansive, it's beautiful in its own way, but it doesn't really draw me in like the mountains do. So I don't know if it's just an energy, like the first time I climbed a mountain, I just thought, man, like, yeah, sure. It's beautiful out here, but I really enjoy this. And this just feels really badass to me, like. Not like I'm a badass, but just being mm-hmm. outdoors and sort of in the elements and just sort of maybe facing my fears. Mm-hmm. It just was like energy, I guess. So I don't know if that explains it either, but when people ask, that's, I guess that's what I use just for lack of a, a better word. Yeah. And I certainly agree to a certain extent. It reminds me, I'll, when I describe mountains, sometimes I'll give them a personality. I, I'll assign them personality traits, which are very um, humanistic. So I'll say, you know, that's a that's a humble mountain. There, there's just something about it. So maybe it's a 13er hunkered below a couple big popular 14ers. And I'll say, yeah, that's a humble mountain. Or if it's a very challenging, yeah, that's a mean mountain. That's a mean mountain. It likes it likes yeah. to mess with people, you know. That's yes. a that's a. It's, if it's a nice easy slope and it's tundra, I'll say yeah, that's a friendly mountain. And so, and not to sound too new age about it, but I, I often do feel like mountains have personalities. For sure, yeah. No, I agree totally. Like. Um, I, I know exactly what you mean. I've, I've climbed mountains that, you know, going back to the word energy had a, a, a bad energy and mm-hmm. it's almost like they were trying to give me a message. Like today's not your day to go up this mountain <laughs> yes. know, the storms or whatever it was. And it's like, well, okay. But then, you know, I've, yeah, like you say, I've had other mountains that seem friendly. It's almost like a different energy. 
Right. And, you know, I've gone back to those mountains and sometimes that energy stays. Sometimes those mean mountains continue to be mean and the friendly ones continue to be friendly. Um, yeah, it's, it's bizarre and it's really hard to put your finger on. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, so on these big trips that you've done in the past, I'm curious, like how, like, how are you doing, how are you doing it? How are you traveling? Is it like on a budget? Are you trying to live on the cheap? When you're mountain biking these long distances or, or kayaking these long distances, do you take days off where you, you stop and get a hotel and pamper yourself? Or is it all out in the woods, um, just like almost dirtbagging it? Yeah, well, if you were to open a dictionary and look up penny pincher, there would just be my. <laughs> oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. And if you uh, looked up the word pamper, my face would not be there. So <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm a pretty bare bones adventurer, um, uh, quite frugal. And mm-hmm. so I'll give you an example. So uh, my, it's either my longest trip. Well, it's my longest trip in mileage, but in days it's, it's, I think second longest is when I rode from Canada to Mexico in 2005. And how long did that take? That was 52 days. Yeah. And that Almost 3,000 miles. And I camped out every single night except three. And that's because I was gravely ill. I had a horrible, horrible stomach bug. And uh, I knew some people in Provo, Utah. They were acquaintances and were kind enough to let me stay at their house and recoup. But other than that, I would have camped out every night. Uh, When I hiked the Florida Trail. That was my longest hike in mileage and days. That was about 1,200 miles in 55 days. I think I stayed in a motel maybe two nights, maybe three out 55 days. And we are quite a few long-distance hikers who, uh, when they go into town to resupply for food, they say, hey, you know, I'll go and get a, a motel, you know, a hostel, and just kind of hole up there and, you know, clean things up and kind of reorganize. I don't really do that. I, I mean, I'll, I'll find a place to take a shower and do laundry. But when it comes to where I sleep, I'd much rather be outside. And it, it uh, I find it very interesting. So I've, I've read some articles over the last few years just in passing, just to pass some time about how much um, a long distance hike might cost. And I, I, I'm simply baffled by these numbers because it's so different than what I do. So I've calculated that a long distance hike I can do for about $6 a day. That's about it. And then throw in a little bit of money for laundry and maybe a shower here and there. But some of these budgets that people are coming up with, you know, they'll, they'll say, and this is not counting gear purchases. They'll say, well, you know, I'm going to through hike the Appalachian trail. The average through hiker takes five months. All right. So there's 150 days and they're coming up with like seven or $8,000. And I'm just like, like, where are you staying? Ever like the high Regency? I don't understand this. Like, it's right. absolutely right. insane. And this one guy wrote an article about his own personal experience and he was spending like $38 a day 
And I was like, where is this money going? I just don't get it. So again, Penny Pincher, you'll see my face. You look up Pamper. <laughs> well, um, I know you've written a few books and um, a couple of your books are on your experiences and then you've written some guidebooks as well. Have you ever thought about writing a book about um, just traveling on the cheap? You know, I haven't. Um, I haven't. It sounds like you have the tools to, to yeah, write that book. Yeah, if I was going to do it, it would probably have been when I was a young writer because I wrote a book, I mean, kind of like that. My first book was a, a guidebook to long distance trails throughout the United States. So that probably would have been the time. But now I'm just immersed in research. I really like writing nonfiction, okay. nonfiction books, um, historically dense and mm-hmm. some dense information. Uh, not, not sure. It still keeps my reader's attention, but I'm more getting into that uh, scholarly work. And I like it because I'm a thinker. I like solving problems and really mm-hmm. doing my homework and doing my research. So that may be, uh, that may be best for a younger penny pincher uh, to take on. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That probably is a, a younger <laughs> yeah. man's book. Um, I'm thinking of like, you know, a Jack Kerouac on sure. the road style sure. um, book, you know, I mean, I, I'm guessing he did it for oh, yes. as well, but uh, you know, he wrote that when he was a young yeah, man yeah. as well. So I totally get it. Yeah. So, I mean, out of all the adventures you've done, I mean, all your adventures in the Adirondacks and your bicycling trips, do you have, do you have a favorite, like one that really stood out when you think back over, over your lifespan, something that really just stands out to you as, as a big game changer or a life changer? Oh, certainly. And uh, I must be honest. I, I said, I think Adam's going to ask me maybe what my favorite adventure was or maybe my toughest one. And well, it would be the same answer. For both questions. Okay. So this Let's is just it. a just a great adventure, and it was just kind of the high point of my life. So the the adventure was great, but it was just a time in my life where I I had a lot of freedom, and I was very adventurous, and you know didn't have a mailing address, and I didn't have a phone, and I was just really uh, at the height of my nomad years. So there's a list of mountains in the Northeast. And the challenge is to climb every peak in the Northeast above 3,000 feet, okay? So, and there are a lot, right? <laughs> And- uh, Over 200, uh, right? 770. Oh, so does this go outside of the state? It does. So this is what it breaks down to. We've got okay. 165 in Maine, 175 in New Hampshire, 109 in Vermont, okay. two- in Massachusetts, four in Pennsylvania, and a whopping 315 in New York. And that 315 is split between two ranges, the Catskill Mountains and the Adirondacks. The Adirondacks have the bulk of them. Now, this list was first completed in August 1997, and it was completed by two notable hikers, Dennis Crispo and John Swanson. And Crispo is from Massachusetts and Swanson is from Jersey and they came up with this idea. Now, up until then, somebody, uh, kind of my hiking hero, Tom Sawyer, real name. And if you think his name, you'll be, uh, Mm -hmm. equally entertained that he's married to Diane Sawyer. 
Yeah, like fake names to me, (laughs) but they're real names. So anyway, uh, Tom climbed every 3,000 foot peak in New England, of which there are about uh, 500. He did that back in the 80s. Just an amazing story, but that's a whole other story. So Swanson and Crispo come along and they're like, hell, let's just go for the whole Northeast. Just amazing. 770 peaks. 420 have no trails to their tops. Now, you know, as somebody who now lives in Colorado and I'm, I'm kind of getting the feel for Colorado hikers, a lot of your listeners may be thinking, one, 3,000 feet, what a joke. And two, <laughs> if it doesn't have a trail, who cares? You know, maybe they're thinking of a lot of above timberline terrain, but unfortunately that's not the case. So 3,000 feet, okay, granted, it's not that high, but let's say you climb a 4,000 foot peak in the Northeast. I mean, the trailhead's at 1,000. You know, so, hey, there's 3,000 feet. Okay, that's sure. nothing to sneeze at. But what really weeds out people who were to attempt this list is the bushwhacking. It's, it's almost indescribable. It's, it's kind of like bushwhacking. It's kind of like hiking through a car wash. And you're just getting these <laughs> branches and you can't see anything. It kind of looks like a South American jungle. So what I tell people, you know, for every 100 compass bearings I take in the Northeast, I can see my destination maybe two times, three times, maybe. It's just really, really dense woods, very slow pace, and you just got to be tough. All right, so we had Swanson and Crispo finish that in 97. Then a third person completed it, uh, a woman by the name of Sue Ellers. And then I was actually fourth. I finished in 2004. Wow. It took me 10 years. Wow climb the 770 peaks and that's regarded as like kind of quick and let me tell you it's a pretty big goal if it takes you a decade and people are going around saying you did it fast (laughs) that's quite a challenge and it's very uh very nice i just got a personal note from a guy who completed the list uh like three weeks ago and he was number 12 so people have managed to do this since 1997 so if we were to do the math, I don't know, that's probably about one person every two or three years. So it's a quite elusive list. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it yeah. sounds like it. And I know that um, it, it, the, the Adirondacks are, are just brutal out there. Like you said, it, you know, they're quote unquote only three or 4,000 feet high. But yeah, just the bushwhacking and the deadfall and I, I've heard other people talk about it and it sounds like just a, a, a brutal adventure. Um, so are you strictly going off of uh, compass and map? You're not using a GPS out there at all, are you? No, I'm mapping compass all the way. Uh, I, I must admit that I have been cheating here in the West. Okay. West, sure. It's a lot easier. This, uh, the off, I mean, we don't even call it bushwhacking out here. It's just called off trail travel because it's really bushes to whack uh i've come out here since last november i've never used my compass you know i just kind of look and i'm like oh okay i guess i'll walk towards that mountain on this beautiful sunny day above timberline so it's very easy uh but in the northeast yeah i was kind of known as that guy like they they must imagine i'm this old crotchety guy who you know hates and maybe they're right to a little bit 
But uh, yeah, I never used a GPS during all my journeys there. It's just straight up map and compass. Again, because I like to think. So I don't want this gizmo in front of me pointing to my destination because then I'm just following this arrow on a screen. And I, I just, I don't see the reward of that. I get the logic, but I don't, I don't see the reward. I don't see the challenge. But with a map and compass, you know, a lot of times I'm kind of getting lost, not lost, but maybe, all right, I think I'm getting a little off track. So you stop and you look around. Okay, well, that hill's over there and that matches up with my map. Okay. And looking at the forest, um, you know, just the certain type of forest. Okay, I'm probably around 28, 29, 3,000 feet. I look at my watch. Okay, I've been going for two hours. That's probably like 2.2 miles. And you kind of piece these inf- these uh, little pieces of information together. And you're like the Sherlock Holmes of the mountains. So you have to these little clues, and then you eventually solve the mystery. It's very rewarding. For sure, yeah. And you've taught navigation courses in the past as well. I have. And again, just always straight up map and compass. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But, I mean, you, you almost have to learn that way. Uh, when I first moved to Colorado, I took a couple navigation mm-hmm. courses and, you know, I'm, I'm probably not near as good as you with a map and compass, but I kind of know the basics. And uh, I remember the instructor, you know, kind of taught me the basics and then she had me put a blindfold on and drove me way out into the middle yeah. of the mountains and, and walked me out in the middle of nowhere. And she's like, okay, tell us how to get out of here. And uh, right. it, was, it was awesome. It was really rewarding. Yeah. It is. And I was very fortunate um, when I moved to the Adirondacks, our neighbor was a New York state forest ranger who was known for being really good at navigation. And he taught me how to use a map and compass when I was 13. Oh, so you've been doing this forever. Yeah. I was very thankful for that opportunity. It, it was really fun. And, you know, as a kid, it totally blew my mind. Cause he's like, yeah, you can, you know, sit at home and take a bearing on your map and then drive a couple hours and then follow that bearing. And I, I just, I could not wrap my head around. I'm like, wait, but you're not there. And he's like, yeah, but this <laughs> is very, very confusing initially. And then you have to adjust for declination, you know, maps point to the North pole and compasses map to Northwest Canada. And so you have to do a little conversion and it was very confusing, but once you get the hang of it, it's like riding a bicycle. Yeah, yeah, no, I get it. Um, so you spent just a ton of time outdoors, and you just kind of mentioned what your most rewarding uh, adventure was, and it took you like a decade to do. Um, what are some of the, the sketchiest moments you've had out there, uh, like moments that really scared you, you were kind of in fear for your life? Have you had any times like that? Well, thankfully, very few. Um, you know, I people backpacking is extremely safe, extremely safe. And so, we, you know, we hear these stories, oh, this person got lost and this person fell off a cliff and this person got dehydrated, but we remember them because they're rare, right? So that's why, that's why they make the news because they never really happen. So overall, uh, I've never had a serious injury in the woods, a couple sprained ankles, and I just, you know, hobbled out. I've never become hopelessly lost because I'm very conscientious. I always know where I am. However, I will say 
that in the Northeast, um, I have been, I don't know if the word is scared, but very concerned. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I'm lying. Maybe I was scared, but we can at least go very concerned. Um, getting way out in the middle of nowhere. I'm off trail. 99% of the time I'm by myself. I like, I prefer solo hiking and it's the weather and, and it's not something I see out West. So maybe people might have a little trouble comprehending how bad the weather can be in the Northeast. Many, many times I've been way out in the middle of nowhere and you get this mix of snow and rain and freezing rain and right to your bones. It is a totally different cold, you know? So for example, I'll take clear and 20 below over 31 33 degrees and rain. It's far dangerous to have that damp cold where all your stuff gets wet. And sometimes this can happen in the winter. So you'll get some temperatures in the winter that rise up to 34, 35 degrees. It starts to rain. And I'm out there in winter on my snowshoes. And the snow turns into like wet cement. I mean, really really, really heavy stuff. So now you got two things going on. You've got this mix of rain, snow, freezing rain, sleet, and you're moving very slowly. And, you know, one mile an hour, maybe, you know, if I'm off trail, it could get down to half a mile an hour. And so you start to get concerned because you're like, okay, my Gore-Tex jacket is now totally soaked. My go- I mean, Tex is waterproof when it's on a rack in REI. <laughs> That's when it's waterproof. When you're out and it's, you know, it's kind of an older jacket. It's been stuffed in and out of a pack. It's got some tears from bushwhacking. You know, it might as well have the waterproofness of a brown paper bag. And you feel yourself getting wet. Now, all my gear in my pack is dry because I always line my pack with a contractor's garbage bag. But it's this quite unsettling, worrisome feeling of being way the hell out in the middle of nowhere and you're wet and you're cold and you're trying to get out as fast as you can. And it's this very different type of cold that seeps right into the middle of you. Mm-hmm. It is. Scary. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever experienced, you know, anything quite like that. I mean, just the storms that I've experienced while out in the mountains here in Colorado mm-hmm. is scary. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, you stop taking care of yourself as well because you begin to panic. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're trying to get out of the mountains. You're trying to get down to a road. You stop eating. You stop drinking. Mm-hmm. And you're just in this panic adrenaline mm-hmm. mode almost. So that is how accidents happen for sure. Yeah, and it could take one simple mishap, you know, one misstep and you have maybe an injury to your knee or your ankle. And I usually, well, not usually, I always bring enough stuff to spend the night. Even for a day hike, I'll have a tarp, I'll have a fleece, I'll have a winter hat, you know, just enough stuff to get me through the night, a little extra food. But man, it it would be a miserable, they don't they don't make the word yet. 
So miserable does not do it justice. They they don't of how bad it would suck if you are in those conditions and you take a misstep and now you have to bivouac. It would be one miserable night. Wow, unreal. Yeah, that's that's scary. I'm curious. Um, and forgive me if this sounds rude Hmm. or uncouth, but are you? Do you consider yourself like antisocial? I mean, you like to do all these things solo. Um, when you're out on these big adventures, do you enjoy meeting people? Because it seems like you're out on, on trails and, and peaks that, that most people usually avoid. Right. Um, would you consider yourself an antisocial person or, or do you like meeting people? That's a very good question and no slight taken at all. Um, that's a very good question. Um, am I antisocial? No, I would say no. I'd say no, I'm not antisocial. Uh, but I really enjoy – well, I think why I do a lot of solo hiking is I enjoy a refreshing level of accountability and responsibility. I just like that. And, and so I've been kind of a similar question in the past. You know, I like going out by myself. So I, I plan the trip and I pack my gear and I get to the trailhead. Okay. And now I'm out in the mountains and there are no trails and there's no one around and it's entirely on me. So if an incorrect compass bearing or a couple of weeks ago, goodness, I, I brought my tarp and I wanted to camp above Timberline and I forgot all the tent stakes. <laughs> so, Oh, (laughs) okay. Now what are you going to do, Eric? And I I eventually figured that out, but it it wasn't a very, it wasn't very good solution. And I kind of like that. It's not that I like messing up. It's that I like putting the onus on me. So, so again, you forget your tent stakes and you're camped above Timberline. What on earth are you going to do? And I just kind of figured that out and, an inventive way. So I, I like that challenge. I like the purity. And, you know, going back to saying, you know, mountains have an energy or they have a personality. Being out there by myself, it feels like I have a relationship with the mountains. Not to sound too spacey about it, but it feels like I'm kind of working with the mountain to get up it. Or I'll sometimes say like, I think of it like the mountain gave me permission to get up it. You know, it's one of those friendly mountains that just welcomes me to the top. So it's very interesting. Now, when I do run into people, I'm quite chatty. I'm like a chatty person. And I think because I feel mm-hmm. so comfortable out in the woods. So when somebody runs into you at the grocery store and they feel that comfortable, that's kind of how I feel in the mountains. And I can tell, I mean, it's very obvious to me, just walking down the trail, if somebody's walking towards me, in one second, I can tell this person doesn't spend a lot of time in the mountains or they did, right? (laughs) And and it's not so much their gear, it's their persona. So I find it just absolutely bizarre. And this is not a slight on people. It's just everybody's different. And if we were all the same, life would be boring. I, I, I find it just utterly fascinating when I'll be a way the hell out in the middle of nowhere on a trail and somebody walks by me and they don't even say hi. They just, they don't even yeah, look right. at it. We're the only two people for like 20 square miles. And because, <laughs> you know, maybe they're not to stereotype, but maybe they're from Denver 
And when you walk to Denver, you don't take the time to say hello to everybody. I mean, that would be exhausting and unreasonable. And maybe they kind of bring habit into the mountains. So when I'm in the mountains, it's kind of like my home. And I'm very warm to people. I just really enjoy talking to people in the mountains. But I'm kind of a man of extremes. I'm, I'm very black and white. My friends can <laughs> certainly vouch for this. I'm kind of like an all or nothing guy. So if I'm on a trail, I'm very chatty. And then I'll go off the trail and climb these far flung peaks far, far, far away from everybody and enjoy that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes sense because, you know, the outdoors is kind of your Mm -hmm. world. So like you said, you can take one look at someone else and you can almost see what they're up against and, and what they're going through, if they're comfortable or if they're not comfortable. And you kind of know how to either, you know, help them in or out of that or to engage in some sort of a conversation. But are you the kind of person who, if you were to see someone walking down a street, are you chatty with that person? Or if you see someone that smiles at you at a grocery store, would you, would you talk to that person? Or is it just in the mountains where you're chatty and more friendly? No, I'm, I'm the chatty guy at the grocery store too. Okay, got it. Yeah, got it. I just um <laughs> I don't know why. You know, and again it's it's kind of an opposing thing. We've got this guy who likes to, you know, ride his bike for three thousand miles by himself, but you know, he's striking up a conversation in the yogurt aisle. This is kind of this is kind of <laughs> weird. Um I, I find people uh interesting to say the least. It's probably from my day job. You know, as a as a therapist, I and that's probably why I got into the field. I'm fascinated with people's thought processes, how they make decisions, how they come to conclusions. I'm very interested in, you know, people who are insecure and people who are loud and people who are quiet and introverts and extroverts. It it runs on this broad spectrum, and I'm always wondering why. And I, it, it's interesting. Our conversation started with, you know, why why do I live in Colorado now? And one of the top three reasons was people in the West, and maybe I'm naive, but I think people in the West are genuinely friendly. So when I go to the supermarket and the checkout girl asks me how I'm doing, I actually believe that she is wondering how I'm doing. You don't really get that in the Northeast where we kind of stick to ourselves. And I think a lot of Westerners would find Northeasterners, quite frankly, rude. It's just a totally different yeah. culture. And so I like that. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy when somebody holds the door for me and I say, thank you. And they say, you're welcome. You know, in the Northeast, there were countless times and I'm <laughs> kind of laughing about this as, you know, I'm walking towards the door and they don't hold it. And I say to myself, I'm like, dude, I know you saw me. I know. <laughs> right. I'm like three feet behind you. There's no way. You did not deduce that I am coming in the store immediately after you. So I like the um, <laughs> genuine friendliness and authenticity of Westerners. And so for a chatty guy like me, it's a good fit. Okay, got it, got it. And what what type of therapy uh, work do you do? Um, and, and are you able to relate any of your outdoor experiences? Are you able to integrate any of that into your therapy work? Right. So I'm, I, I have a master's in clinical social work and I'm a licensed social worker here in Colorado. 
Now, I, I, I very rarely use the word social worker because people don't really know what that means or they think it's something to do with social justice or they think it's like the person who comes and takes kids away from families. It's kind of weird. Sure. Yeah, it's just Correct. kind of a weird term. So I, I tell people I'm a therapist and that's really what I am. So I'm a mental health therapist. So I work at a private practice here in Colorado Springs and my clients run the gamut. I have uh, quite a few uh, clients with post-traumatic stress disorder. They're either combat veterans or had childhood trauma. Another very common condition I work with is depression. And depression and anxiety are kind of like cheeseburger and fries. You know, if you're going to have one, you usually have the other go together. And then I have quite a few clients that are just um, in unfulfilling relationships. They've kind of lost their identity. Like their relationship has now become their identity and they're not sure how to proceed. So I do straight up talk therapy. Somebody comes in, we always have a 50 minute session. And the first thing I ask when they come in my office is, how are you doing? I haven't seen you in a week. Do you have any updates? What's on your mind? And then you just get this very, you'd be surprised. It's just this very natural, free flowing conversation. They say a little, I offer an observation. They say some more. I ask an open-ended question, you know, like, what do you think of that? It's a really good question to ask a client or where do you think that comes from? Really good question for a client. And we just kind of do some housekeeping and clean out the clutter. It's kind of like cleaning out an attic, the attic being their brain. It's got these cobwebs and we're just going to spruce things up. Now, being in Colorado, thankfully, almost every client I have is very active outside. So I have mountain bikers, climbers, backcountry skiers. Most of my clients do yoga. And so that is great. So when I do an intake with somebody, you know, we're going through boilerplate, like, have you ever been hospitalized? Are you on meds? Do you have a current diagnosis, et cetera, et cetera? And one of the questions I ask is, you know, what, what do you do for activity, whether inside or outside? And they'll say, oh, I'm a I'm a cross-country runner or I'm a yoga instructor. And immediately I always say, good, don't stop or maybe do more. Now, if I have a client who doesn't really do anything, you know, you, a, a lot of these folks, it's just about baby steps. You, they can't come in and you just drop a bomb on them. That's not why they're there. They're looking for a gentle guiding voice to give them feedback. So I'll say, well, what do you do? And they say, I don't do anything. Nothing, you don't run or no, no, I don't do anything. So, okay. So I wouldn't come out with, you know, would you consider big mountain skiing? You know, (laughs) would you like to run an ultra, you know, will you run three ultras this summer and do the Nolan Ford? (laughs) No, I'll say, you know, have you, yes, yes. Have you considered um, going for a walk after dinner? All right. Do you live, you know, let's say it's a woman. Do you live near one of your girlfriends? Yeah, she walks down the street. All right. Then maybe you can take a walk with her. And then when they're walking, you know, and this just happens naturally, of course, they're going to start talking. And she might say, yeah, I've been going to a therapist. Okay. What do you guys talk about? Well, I don't really want to get into it, but blah, 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 blah. So it's great 
it's a great combination if somebody's outside being active and they have a partner because now you have the physical and mental benefits of it, but you also have at least some form of social support. And when you're with somebody and they're a good listener and empathetic, and maybe they share their experience on top of that, the client may say to themselves, wow, I'm not the only person who thinks like this. I'm not the only person with problems. And it gets people outside their head a little right. bit too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find it easier to be a therapist living uh, in Colorado than it was on the East Coast? Well, it's a different type of – well, the answer is yes, but it's only due to the nature of my work. So here – well, I, I should start with what I did in New York. So I got my master's in New York, and I went part-time, so it took four years. And when you do those four years, you have to do two insur- internships. And one of them, I worked with uh, intellectually disabled adults, which is a great population. I could see myself working with them alone. I just had a, or excuse me again, I just had a, but the other place I worked was a secure psychiatric hospital. You want to talk about challenging work. It's people who are basically (laughs) so decompensated, so unstable that they can't go to jail. And there are some pretty eccentric people in jail. Okay? And so, you know, some people who were just experienced a complete break with reality. So I'll give you an example. I worked with a young man named Noah. And th- this is meant in a literal sense. This is not figurative speech. He thought he was RoboCop. Okay. And that's why he (laughs) ate batteries. Okay. Yeah. So so that's just one. (laughs) And it's a very interesting story why he uh, thought that, but that's a whole other story. Um, So that's like an almost typical client I had. Well, they weren't clients. They were patients because they were in a hospital. So that was kind of the, 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 Noah was kind of average. I mean, these are very, difficult people wow. to work with and you can't really do talk therapy you can't do talk therapy. out of <laughs> right. med management don't hurt yourself you know please don't throw the chair through the window and don't assault another staff member you know it's just that was a typical day at work it was fascinating and it was good for me because i saw mental illnesses that i'll probably never come across again you know, like schizophrenia, dual personality disorder. I mean, these are crippling, debilitating illnesses. Here, my work's a lot easier. You know, it's kind of going through the army and the infantry and then backpacking, you know, really difficult. And now it's not that difficult. So here, everybody comes in voluntarily. I mean, boom, big difference right there. You know, you're not sent to see Eric Schlimmer. You just, hey, I've heard this guy's a pretty good therapist. I guess I'll go talk to him and nobody that I've worked with is really severely decompensated because if they were, they'd probably be in a hospital. So the clients that come in, they they're coming in with very important things. And I tell them, whatever you tell me is important because we tend to downplay our problems. They go, Oh, well, you know, this stupid thing I was thinking about talking. I said, no, 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 no. Whatever you bring up in a session is very important. So out with it, let's talk about it. 
so yeah, after working in a psych hospital, uh, I have it pretty easy out here. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like it. Wow. Well, that's cool. It's interesting. I find that that line of work interesting. So yeah, I was I wanted to hear some of uh, some of the details mm-hmm. there. But um, um, tell us what else you've been up to since you've been in Colorado. Like, um, ha- have you had any? Uh, big adventures you said you've been out on some like weekend hikes um, and and what are your plans for the future like now that you're here it doesn't sound like you've explored this state as much as you know the northeast or the state of New York Um, what what have you been up to and what are your plans yeah I'm just exploring which is great I, I I like just the new terrain I like looking out on the horizon and I'm not really sure what I'm looking at. It's, it's humbling. And I like that. So specifically what adventures I'm working on. Um, again, I'm just out there climbing mountains, you know, uh, if it's a 14er fine, you know, if it's some 9,000 foot peak in the high desert, fine. I'm not really picky unless, uh, as long as I'm out there, I'm not really picky, but I've been really active. I've been here, less than 10 months and I've been up, uh, 147 peaks. So I've been (laughs) quite busy. Most of them were above 10,000. I've done a couple 14ers and maybe 30 or 40, uh, maybe even 50 above 13,000. And and those are nice, but to be honest, I prefer the lower peaks because I like to be in forests. I really like trees. So I'm just kind of, there you know doing whatever i can every weekend it's usually a one or maybe two night trip now i thought it'd be a good idea to explore colorado because i don't know anything you know somebody's like oh i went to pagosa springs no idea i don't know near denver i don't know if it's on the new mexico border i have no clue so i'm pretty naive as to where things are in colorado and so i said well Maybe a good way to see the state would be to visit the highest point in each county. So Colorado has 62 counties and I've been up 20 uh, county high points so far. And they've been pretty cool. Some have been uh, rugged 14,000 foot peaks. Quite a few I've done out towards Kansas. So you just have the gentle rise, you know, you can't call it a mountain. It's this gentle rise. Mm-hmm. Um, out in the Great Plains, you know, I, I found another county high point up by Denver. It was near the airport, and it was just in a residential street, like the suburbs, as <laughs> a intersection. Oh. And then, you know, some trailless peaks, some trailed peaks, and so I've got about twenty of those done. So I'm kind of getting a lay of the land. There are two big adventures I'd like to do. One, of course, predictably, is the Colorado Trail. I, I'd really like to hike. Colorado Trail. Okay. It's interesting. I have two friends from New Hampshire. One's a very, very accomplished hiker, like a lot of throughout the U.S. And the, he and his wife hiked the Colorado Trail. I said, hey, how'd it go? And he goes, let me tell you, man, if you knew you were going to die soon and you could only hike one long distance trail in the U.S., it would be the Colorado Trail. He, he said it was wow. he's ever hiked and he's done Pacific Crest Trail, John Muir Trail, Florida Trail, Arizona Trail. It's been all over. They were really, really impressed with the Colorado Trail. So that's on the list. And then, uh, again, I like to kind of do what nobody else does. 
there's this trail, maybe you've heard of it, but a lot of people haven't. Are, are you familiar with the Rainbow Trail? Uh, yeah. Heard of it. Um, remind me where that's at. I, I'm not super familiar. Yeah, it's the red-headed stepchild of Colorado, apparently. People don't know too much <laughs> about the Rainbow Trail. The Rainbow Trail is precisely 100 miles. So it's 100.0 miles. And it runs along the eastern side of the Sangre de Cristos. And I've hiked mm, a couple okay. sections just by chance, you know, like a mile here, a mile there. And it's pretty cool. I've done maybe five, six trips in the Sangre de Cristos, and they never fail to disappoint. And, oh, oh it's just stunning. And, um, you know, the, I, I like the length because it's more realistic for me. So to hike Colorado Trail, you know, I'd probably have to take 25 days off of work. You know, look, I got to pay the bills. I don't think my employer is going to be too psyched if I say, hey, I want 25 days off. But Rainbow Trail, I mean, at 20 miles a day, which isn't that much, you'd be done in five days. So you take two or three days off of work and you just did yourself a long distance trail. Yeah. Does that trail go through West it, Cliff? It's very close to it. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. Actually, I'm headed out that way this weekend. There's an ultra marathon going on out there this weekend. It's called the Sangre de Cristo ah. Ultras. And uh, yeah, part of it is on the yes. Rainbow Trail. So now that you mention it, it's all yeah. Yeah, starting to make sense. So I haven't spent a ton of time out there, but I'm going to be out there this weekend. So yeah, maybe I'll keep you posted on, yeah, on please. how it is. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. That's cool. So you're enjoying Colorado. That's uh, I like the idea of of going to the highest points of of all the different counties. Um, that's pretty interesting. Like, um, you know, you hear of like I did when I first became kind of enamored with Colorado. It's like, well, you got to do all the fourteeners because it's the highest right. points. But you know, that's that's what everybody does. You know, the fourteeners are pretty crowded mm -hmm. nowadays. And um, so, yeah, that's a good idea. I really like that. Yeah, good good way to see the state. And again, you know, I've got 20 done, but they're all kind of in my neck of the woods. I mean, the other 40, I, I probably couldn't even name a single county. And I'm just so unfamiliar. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you could just make up a name and tell me it's a county and I would probably believe you. I, I just really don't know much about Colorado. So it, it's nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the same thing goes with some of the adventures that you've been on. You could just make up a name and I'd be like, yeah, okay, that sounds like a good one. I mean, it's, I'm reading through your list of some of the things you've done and, you know, a, a good chunk of them I've never heard of. So, um, yeah, it's all about, uh, you know, just how much time you spend out there and, and getting to, to know the lay, the, lay yeah. of the land. So um, you'll get there. You'll get all of Colorado, I'm sure. You'll explore it all. It's yeah, all I hope so. Yeah, I plan on being around for quite a while. That's cool. When you're out hiking on these these uh, long through hikes and such, um, what's your what's your go to food? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, if it's a long hike, I do bring a stove, but I only cook. So I don't bother cooking breakfast. I just like to get up, throw my crap in my pack, and go. I just like get up at dawn, okay. and within five minutes, uh, pack's packed up, and you know maybe I've got a something in my hand as I'm kind of eating breakfast hiking. So I like to get an early start and just get up and go. Um, I look for a couple qualities in food. 
Okay, so one, um, it would be ideal if that food packed at least 100 calories per ounce. So a couple examples of that would be uh, anything chocolate, <laughs> generally anything chocolate has more than 100 calories per ounce. Peanut butter has more than 100 calories per ounce. Ramen has more than 100 calories per ounce. So I do have some foods that are not 100 calories per ounce, like, for example, hard candy. I just like to chew on hard candy as I hike, uh, which is fine. It's still calories and still energy. But uh, why I choose 100 calories per ounce is if I'm going to go on a long-distance hike, how I measure my food is by weight. And so there's a great formula you can use is spring, summer, and fall. If you bring 1.75 pounds of food per day, you will have enough because you're basing on at least 100 calories per ounce. Okay. Winter, it may go up to two pounds. Okay. But two foods for spring, summer, and fall I've got peanut butter, anything chocolate, hard candy. I like Cheez-Its. Cheez-Its are good. Um, I will eat some energy bars. Uh, one of my sponsors is um, Honey Stinger. So I'll bring gels. They're not 100 calories per ounce, but they're really good and they're really convenient. I'm a fan of those. For dinner, uh, I could eat the same thing <laughs> every night for 30 or 40 nights. I usually have two packs of beef ramen with a handful of textured vegetable protein a handful of dried veggies, and Tabasco. That's just kind of my go-to dinner. And then I eat directly out of the pot. So my entire kitchen is a, a small titanium pot, a spoon, and a tinfoil lid. That, that's my entire kitchen. And then, of course, my backpacking stove. Um, I am a coffee drinker, but I don't bother drinking coffee in the woods. Uh, I don't drink tea, just, just straight up water. I don't use any energy drinks or stuff like that. Water is still the best. Um, that's about it. I keep it pretty simple. So again, at least a hundred calories per ounce and the food has to be durable. And then also it's ideal if it has a pretty long shelf life. Got it. Okay. And also you're kind of known for not filtering your water as well, right? <laughs> I am. And, uh, yeah, being a therapist, I can assure you that psychology of uh, the, the, the um, psychological features people display when I tell them they don't have to treat their water is far more interesting than the water treatment conversation. It's very, very right? interesting. So the short story, I, I did a lot of research in the mid 2000s when I taught outdoor education. I concluded that the water's just fine. And I'm up to about a thousand untreated quarts. I haven't treated any water since 2005. And this is scores of, well, hundreds of different water sources across about eight or nine different states. Now, are some, are some people getting sick when they go on backpacking trips? Yes. But, there's a, uh, but we have to ask why. Okay. So, so if we just say yes, that really doesn't tell us anything. It's why? So when somebody goes backpacking, they're not getting sick from the water and field data and evidence back this up clearly. 
what they're getting sick from is probably a foodborne illness. So you notice just a minute ago, I said, yeah, I eat directly out of my pot. So I don't use mugs, bowls, other pots and pans, anything like that, because I want to avoid a foodborne illness. So by eating directly out of my pot and eating ramen every night, I have this perpetually disinfected pot. So I've never gotten a foodborne illness in the woods. Now, the, the really uh, more common way and the far more insidious way that people are getting sick is I'll, I'll give you a scenario. All right, so Adam and Eric go backpacking. Great. And then I go to the bathroom and I go number two. And I didn't hand sanitizer, right? Go and do my business and I come back to the trail and there you are munching on this delicious bag of gorp. And it's so delicious that you can't train yourself. You say, Eric, you have to have a handful of this gorp. And reach into the food bag. Now, what we don't, neither of us know this, but I have giardiasis. I'm asymptomatic. So we don't really know that I'm sick because I'm not displaying any signs. And I have microscopic pieces of fecal matter on my hand because I just went to the bathroom. I reach into your food bag. I say, wow, that is some delicious gorp, Adam. Why don't you have some more? And then you reach your hand. There's no delicate way to put it. It's called direct fecal oral contact. So now you have gotten my giardiasis cysts, which might be viable, which can infect you. And that's how you get sick. Now, people have trouble believing me. And that's where the psychology of these folks becomes just absolutely fascinating is they're hung up on this issue that it's the water. But again, all evidence concludes and all field data concludes it's either a foodborne illness or direct fecal oral contact. Wow. Okay. So explain like what I've been told, and maybe this is completely wrong is you know, when, when people uh, dip mm-hmm. into a stream, you know, if there was an animal up the stream, like uh, an, an elk up there that took a dump and some of that got in the water and washed downstream and some of that ended up in my bottle, that's how we're getting started. Right, right. Is that completely wrong or? Well, no, it's, you know, it's not completely out? wrong and, and language is important. So is that possible? Yes. Is it probable? No. So there's a big difference between possible and probable. And I'm not saying you're doing this because you're not. But when I have this conversation with people, when they realize that they really don't have the data that I have or they haven't done the homework I have, they cite outlying improbable cases. So a lot of people will say, yeah, but what if there's a dead animal in the stream? And then I'll come back with, have you ever seen a dead animal in the stream? Because I've hiked 15,000 miles. I've never seen a dead animal in the stream. And they say, yeah, but, you know. Right. So it's not just a, a, a gamble and going with odds. It's just the chance. So in, in, in addressing your question, so for you to get sick from the water, there would have to be multiple layers of improbable things happening. Okay, so and they would have to happen in a series. Okay, so for one, you would have to have an animal in the water. Okay, well, that's improbable. 
And then he would have to poop in the water, and that's improbable. And then mm -hmm. the animal would have to be carrying giardiasis, which is improbable. Then on top of that, <laughs> and I hope I'm not boring you, on top of that, the no. cysts would have to go into the water, which is also improbable. On top of that, the cysts would have to be viable. And through research done on water sources, when they find cysts, almost every single cyst is already dead. So it's just a corpse. It's a corpse of a cyst that can't get you sick. Okay, well, now you would have to have a certain amount of viable cysts. And then they would have to filter through all the vegetation, the sand, the quilt, the, um, the silt, the clay, the sand, the gravel, everything down into your water bottle, right? So when we look at these six or seven things that must happen in a specific sequence, the chances of that happening are basically zero. So I'm just trying to wrap my head around this because I'm pretty fascinated, actually. Um, so when you're dipping from a stream, are, are you looking around to make sure that this is clean running water or have you dipped from from standing water? I mean, I've seen some pretty brown water and I'm guessing you're not drinking that stuff or are you? No, I'm, I'm careful. So it's very interesting. My last backpacking trip, um, <laughs> it was a father and son sitting near a stream and I didn't have any water and I came in and I nonchalantly dipped my bottle in and just started drinking. And they got to talking to me about this and they were like, wait a minute, you don't use a filter? They thought I was crazy. Yeah. No. And I basically yeah. gave them the short story that I just gave you. I go, look, you know, it's all about hygiene. Don't worry about the water. And his son was very interested in this. And he asked me almost the identical question you just asked me. He's like, but like, what, He's like, what I'm trying to understand is how do you determine what water is good and what water is bad? And I said, hey, look, what most I, I do the opposite of other people, of course, you know, this is the type of guy I am. So what most backpackers do is say, I'll treat all water unless it's a remote mountain spring. So nobody's around and that water is coming from the middle of the earth. In that case, I'll drink it straight. So what they have is one case, or I should say one condition in which they will not treat the water, okay? The opposite. I have one condition in which I will treat water, and that's if the water looks bad, okay? And this sounds really simple, but I'll give you an analogy, okay? So if I were to go to my fridge right now, I can open up the door and glance at the food, and I know what spoiled food is. Okay, so I might have a loaf of bread with mold, or, oh, I have this leftover pot roast, and I open up the Tupperware and stick my nose in. I'm like, ooh, I think I got to throw this out. Okay, When I look at a water source, it's really as simple as that. And this makes people's hair stand on end. They just think I'm crazy. But hey, I must be doing something right because I'm up to a thousand untreated courts and I feel just. So right. if I look at the water and I'm like, it doesn't look right. It doesn't smell right. There's just something up with this water. I'll simply pass it and go to the next good water source. And again, mm -hmm. this 
works. It, it totally, totally works. And I'm just living proof of that, I guess you could say. Wow. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, I'm fascinated. So, so you're paying very, very close attention to your hygiene. Mm-hmm. And um, would you, would you share a bag of gorp with someone else? Or would you just not even take I wouldn't chance? even think about it. Wouldn't think uh, about it. it. And it's interesting that I taught outdoor education. I, I would show up, this was at colleges, and I would show up at the program and there was one college I, I was actual faculty, but I worked at, at a bunch of other colleges as a field instructor. And so I would show up and I'd say, you know, what, what are you guys doing here? And they say, well, you know, this is the type of gear we have and these are the types of trips we do. And, you know, do your students filter their water? Oh, yes, 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 yes. That, that's like we don't allow them to drink straight from the source. They must treat the water. And then, of course, I would say, do you have students getting sick? And they go, oh, we got, <laughs> they go, oh, yeah. <laughs> I say, well, maybe it's not the water. And so what I would do is circulate the research I've done and maybe print out some source works. And then I'd say to them, hey, look, you know, I'm, if you treat your water, I'm not going to make fun of you. Just do whatever you want. Do what you think is best. That's always the best thing to do. Just do what you think is best. And the students would say, boy, this guy, Eric, I think he knows what he's talking about. So they would not treat their water. Now, if they didn't treat their water, or if they did, they had to follow certain rules that I laid down. One of them was nobody reaches into another's food bag. That's the most common way that groups are getting sick is that fecal or contact that spreads through a group. And when you get these illnesses, some of the infection rates in the group are like 60 or 70%. It's impossible to get that high of an infection rate from water. It has to be coming from direct fecal oral contact. But it's interesting. We'd go on these trips. They wouldn't treat their water. Hygiene was not optional. And the illnesses went down to zero. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So has this carried over to your everyday life when you're not in the mountains? As far as hygiene, are you, do you sanitize your hands all the time? Are you constantly washing your hands or do you just not share food with people? I'm very, you know, I have the hygiene of your typical bachelor, uh, which is probably not very good. (laughs) Sure. sure. Um, No, I don't. Hey, I don't wash my hands often. I don't use hand sanitizer often. Um, I think germs are good. I think really good. And it's interesting if you look at um, the illness rates of like kids who grow up on farms, it's actually pretty low because they're out there and they're exposed to these germs from their livestock and they're eating dirt and breathing in dust and stuff like that. Farm kids are usually very robust, healthy people. So it's very interesting, probably because they're um, exposed to germs. And of course, you know, some of this has gone over the top. I mean, you can walk into a store now and buy a toy that's like pre sanitized, you know, it's like in this sealed container. And I, I mean, look, to a certain extent, of course, we don't want, you know, everybody walking around willy nilly using the bathroom, not washing their hands and stuff like this. 
But people have become, I think, overly cautious about, you know, just touching a doorknob or, you know, having hand sanitizer in their pocket all the time. It's some kind of balance that you have to create between just basic hygiene and we should all have basic hygiene and not being overly concerned. You know what I mean? Some kind of balance in between. For sure. So what kind of things are you doing in the woods to take care of your own hygiene? Um, What kind of tips would you tell people? Are you carrying hand sanitizer in the woods or what exactly is it that you're doing? Yeah, I do. Yeah, there are a couple simple things that you can do. And again, these are proven effective through evidence and field data. Okay. So I'll kind of share what I would do with my outdoor education students. Okay. So a big part of outdoor education is group cooking. They kind of make a big pot of something and then each student comes up with their bowl and their spoon and they kind of throw the slop in their bowl. But now you've got ladles and spatulas and pots and pans and no, 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 no. Get rid of all that stuff. And I call it one pot system. So again, it's a pot, a spoon and a lid. That's it. All right. Now you can have water bottles, of course, but when it comes to dining, it's just a pot, a lid and a spoon. And that's yours. You don't share it with anybody. Oh, can I borrow your spoon? I lost mine. Nope. You're out of luck. Okay. Everybody keep to themselves. Okay. And then they're going to select foods that require boiling water. So you could do mac and cheese. You could do ramen, something like that. And now this pot is going to be disinfected before you eat out of it when the meal is cooked. Okay, so that takes care of all the foodborne illness stuff. It's very simple approach to use. And now you have a lightweight kitchen too, right? So now you just lighten your load and you eliminated foodborne illnesses. Now, when it comes to hygiene, the biggest thing, we're not gonna reach into other people's food bags. We're not sharing anything, basically. I mean, maybe if you have like, like, a package of hard candy and the candy is individually wrapped. Yeah. I, go ahead and reach your hand. It's no big deal. Cause you're going to take the wrapper off. Okay. When people go to right. the bathroom, they're going to bring hand sanitizer with them before they prepare food. They use hand sanitizer, but it's just kind of king to yourself. You're going to keep your kitchen and whatever utensils pot, whatever you're using to yourself The biggest thing, do not reach into others' food bags. Don't share water bottles. You're just kind of doing your own thing. And it's it's been effective. Wow. Wow. Really cool, man. I'm gonna put it to the test. I'm I'm really interested. I think that that's that's pretty cool. I learned something new and uh, I can't wait to try it out and and to blow people's minds as well, just like you have. I I wanna see the looks on people's faces when you know, you're dipping out of a stream and just drinking the water. So well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, now. and it is fun. Yeah, look, we all have this sadistic uh, side in ourselves, deep down inside. I-, I must admit, when I see people sitting by a stream, I purposefully go. I- I'll-, I'll admit it. I go up, right. and st- even if I'm not thirsty, <laughs> and dip the bottle just uh. to see what they do. And I've had some people freak I tried to grab <laughs> I yeah, this one guy. I remember in the outer, he tried to grab my bottle out of my hand. 
And he was just like, crazy? <laughs> about. And people get really upset usually, or they think I'm in, well, it's one of three things. They get upset. Why? I don't know. I'm not pouring it in their mouth, but they get really upset. Or two, the most common one is they just think I'm a total idiot. Like I have no idea what I'm doing, but they don't know that in all the research. Or like the father and son, that they'll gently say, hey, I noticed that you did this. What's going on? And then we just have this nice conversation. Yeah, that's a good conversation starter right there. <laughs> wow, that's so cool. All right, Eric, I got one more question yeah. for you. Um, you've been super generous with your time. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm fascinated. I, I love talking to you. I, I could Likewise. do this all night. This is, this is great. But um, so your book, um, My Adirondacks, um, there was like a blurb on the back that said that um, you have camped with cops, you've chased bears, gotten lost, and eaten apple pie naked in the yes. woods. I got to hear the, the eating apple pie naked in the woods story. I'm guessing there's a story there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the camping with cops is my favorite one because they were from Jersey. They were very animated, very nice guys. But well, oh. I like the mountains. Well, I like the mountains and I like being there solo because I come and go and do as I please. Right. And the, the apple t- pie story was one of those. So, look, you know, again, I like to I like to change things up. And we were talking about food earlier. Well, it was fall in the Adirondacks and maybe not a lot of listeners know this. Um, New York grows a god awful lot of apples. We have a lot of apple farms and we actually have the largest Macintosh apple farm in the world. We have some really big apple farms. Okay. And so of course we have cider and apple pie and all those other apple products, right? So I was at the uh like a farm stand I think um a day or two before a backpacking trip and I saw this delicious apple pie you know it's like the size of my head it's like the size of a manhole cover I and mean, it's like a... and i looked at it and i said well i really and i do really like apple pie and I said, yeah i am just going to bring an apple pie that's all i'm going to bring on this backpacking trip the two-day trip so i'm just going to bring a apple pie and then i'll have my water bottle and get water it, it, I, it can be done I so it. i just giant apple pie and um so i i bushwhacked way out in the middle of nowhere it's beautiful up there in the fall i've got this feels like i've got a bowling ball in my pack you know this is big apple pie and i get into camp and i'm out in the middle of nowhere no trails or anything and i kind of set up my tarp and i've got my sleeping bag laid out and stuff like that and i'm just eating this apple pie with a spoon and i just i I just look i mean if you stumbled upon me you'd be like what is up with this guy you know um, nobody was around. It was a perfect temperature. And I was like, you know what? I was just going to take all my clothes off too. You know, Hey, do whatever I want. <laughs> I ended sure. up, yeah, sitting on my sleeping pad, you know, just this naked guy in the middle of nowhere, eating an entire apple pie with a spoon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just loving life. Life is Hey, good. look, there are worse habits you could have. Oh my gosh. I don't know if it gets much better than that. That's, <laughs> that's, uh, 
that's the best. I love it. It must have been good because I still I still uh, remember it, so I must have enjoyed it. Uh, so cool, so cool. Um, Eric, you have a website. What is uh, your website address so that we can send people to it if they want to buy any of your books or or contact you? Ah, uh, yes. So for a guy who uh, is admittedly maybe a little borderline antisocial, I amazingly have three websites. I, I don't know how this works. So, We've got um, the Trans Adirondack Root website, since trail I'm the creator of, and that's just transadk.com, so you can learn about that in, up in the Adirondacks. And then the publishing site, I have my own small publishing company. We've got seven there. Yeah, we haven't even talked about yeah, that. Yeah, Beachwood Books, but the website address is Beachwood BKS, because somebody already wrote Beachwood Books, so it's beachwoodbks.com. And then the website of yours truly is the hiking veteran. So it's just the hiking veteran.com. And you can see my adventures just kind of what I'm up to there. But uh, more importantly, as every article I've ever written, so there are about 35 articles there. One is of course on GRDASIS, but you can just kind of read about my adventures and what I've been up to for the last uh, about three decades. Awesome. And your your uh, publishing company? Do you just publish your own books, or do you publish others bo- other books as yeah, well? Yeah, I keep it simple. So my first book was with McGraw Hill. This is kind of this impersonal type relationship. It, it was okay. It was okay, especially for a young writer. And I was like, hell, I know how to write. So I just started my own publishing company. So yeah, right now it's just me. So me and my team, but all the books are written by yours truly, and we have our eight. I think our eighth one coming out on New Year's Day. So yeah, right now it's me. And I have thought about that, you know, because I've actually had people ask me, say, hey, you know, are you accepting manuscripts? Would you like to publish my book? So I've had quite a few inquiries so far. So who knows? Maybe that will change down the road. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, is that um, sort of the go-between um, between, you know, publishing with a publishing house that's sort of impersonal and, and self-publishing? Yeah, and... Quite a few people self-publish, but self-publishing um, used to enjoy a pretty bad reputation. So self-publishing 15, oh, 20 sure. years ago was you self-publish because your book is terrible. <laughs> wants it. No, nobody wants it, yep. so you self-publish. Yep. But now you have these little kind of small startup uh, publishing uh, companies, and the books are actually – quite good. You know, they're, they're kind of hit or miss, but since I've got eight books and I used to write for McGraw Hill and I'm still a part-time freelance writer, I've got those bona fides, which, you know, people can see my work and say, you know, this guy's been writing for a while. He seems legit. So I don't think I'm, I'm tainted with that, but you do have to be careful uh, with some of these titles. Mm Mm-hmm. And you're able to collect all the royalties yourself. You don't have to pay anyone else, right? That's right. And, you know, uh, people have this impression that authors are wealthy. Uh, that is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that right. is not the case. Um, yeah. <laughs> those, yeah, those big checks for 100 bucks rolling. Oh, yeah it's, yeah. it's pretty sweet. Yeah. I'm going to Lexus for that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, McGraw-Hill was probably pretty typical, and you get something like five – for each copy sold, 5% of net. Yeah. So it's quite low. So here, 
are making a hell of a lot more per title, but you have to hustle. For sure. Yeah. You're doing all the work. Yep. Yep. Cool. Well, you're a renaissance man, Eric. You do all kinds of stuff and uh, you're a fascinating cat. And I really enjoyed talking to you, man. So I'm looking forward to seeing what else you, you're going to get up to in, in Colorado. I'm going to keep an eye on you. And uh, next time you have a big adventure, maybe we'll have to chat again because I feel like there was so much more of it we didn't even get into. So, um, yeah, man, it was great talking to you. And uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. The pleasure was all mine. It's a great podcast. And I look forward to talking to you again. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Really appreciate you. You too. Have a great night. Bye. All right. Bye. If you guys enjoy this podcast, please consider making a donation. You can tap support this podcast to donate whatever you feel inspired to do. It would go a long way in helping keep this podcast alive. Or if you don't have the means, you can share it. Make sure you subscribe. You can write us a review. It is all much appreciated, you guys. Also, do you need supplements? Protein powder, energy drinks, vitamins. Uh, I'm talking about vitamins with nothing but the good stuff in it. All organic, no filler, um, and energy drinks with... No sugary crap in them. I'm talking about the good stuff with a nice... It's going to give you a nice sustained energy all day long. Hit me up. I got the goods. I can hook you guys up. Um, Give me a shout. You can find us at big-things-crewing.com. Send me an email. Give me a shout. I'd love to help you guys out. want to help you achieve your the best version of, of yourself. And that's what we're here to do. That's what we're all about. So give us a shout. We'd love to hear from you guys. Life is short. Do big things, baby.